The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, Exodus 25 tonight. If you take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 25, in 2005, more than 13 years ago, I began a series of messages which I felt were foundational for changing the paradigm of our church. And I think it changed, maybe change is not the right word, but I would say that it enhanced the centrality of the focus of our church on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the relationship that Christ has to his church. And I don't mean to say that before that time that our church never focused on Christ, because certainly we did, but I think it was fair to say that there was a time when there was more of a focus on a, on a self-accomplished sanctification rather than sanctification that is worked in the believer through his faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure if you understand what I mean by that, but I'm, I'm trying to, to make a case that whenever we put our works ahead of God's work, um, we lose sight of the cross and we begin to think that everything that we do must be done in the energy of our flesh. And it's not Christ that's actually working in us, but it is what we can, we can do for him. And if we lose sight of the, of the proper way to look at that, inevitably we think that, that we are the church ourselves and uh, we, all the church work is dependent upon our performance and the advancement of the gospel rises or falls on our abilities. But in 2005, when we began a study of the tabernacle, I believe that brought us more to a realization that our primary purpose when we come in to the Lord's house is to only worship Christ. This is what we come for. And I know that once upon a time, you might say, that there were confusing statements that were made in this church that said that worship is a private matter. That when you come to church, it's not for the purpose of worship, but worship is something you do someplace else. You do it at home someplace else, but the church is not the place, the place to come to worship. And I think that leads people to miss that our lives need to be lived for the glory of God and that what we do here is all about God and it's not again not about us but what God does through us. Now recently we've been studying um, the worship of the tabernacle regarding sacrifices. We're all familiar with that. We've just been through that long study and we've looked at Christ in his many many glorious aspects through Old Testament sacrifices. And there may be some who hear things like that. They hear those kinds of subjects and the length of the study, how long it took. And they're just not too happy with that because it's not the usual fare that you hear when you go into church. And so people want to hear sermons, more sermons about clean living. At least some people do. They want to, to hear sermons about clean living uh, they would like if a preacher would give them financial advice or marriage advice or can you solve my family problems? I have work issues. Can you help me with that? But those of you that have been with me here for 16 years, you know that I'm not too likely to preach a 32 sermon series on the family. 
Not that I haven't preached on those things, but I do preach on them. But you're not likely to hear a long sermon series like we do on these other subjects because as long as I live, I don't think those things will be the primary focus of the ministry. Sometimes I feel the frustration of visitors because they come into our services and they will sit for a few minutes and then they find, well, that's not the type of evangelical church that I'm used to attending. Uh, and what we're really trying to do here, what we want to do, and I, I, I have a message on this in a few weeks, but I, I think that among Baptist people, that to a, big, a large degree, we have lost a sense of reverence when we come to worship. We have lost a sense of reverence for our holy God. And what we want to do is to build that sense of reverence in the church. Not that we can't have fun and, and those kinds of things, but we're, we're not modeling our church after a preacher or some guru and some idea that he has. We're not modeling ourselves after a system of worship. We try to model ourselves after Christ and what he would do and what he requires of his people. So way back there in 2005, I began this sermon series, and I took you to the place where I grew up. That is, I took you to the place where I received my theological grounding. It's out of the tabernacle and the many exceptional doctrines of God's Word that are taught through the tabernacle that I first began to learn theology. My father preached on the tabernacle every few years, and that's because there were newbies that came into the church from time to time that hadn't heard this. There were Christians that needed to be refreshed on it from time to time. Old folks that had heard it but needed to hear it again. And I think we might be a little bit on the tail end of that system. We have mostly old folks that need to be refreshed on this. And this is not a reflection of your age. I mean the time that you've been uh, here in our church. Most of you have been here a long time. So you might need to be refreshed on it, but there are some who still haven't heard about types and figures and these examples, the symbols that are found in the Old Testament worship of the tabernacle. And you find very little preaching on the subject today. Uh, you can listen to your radio and twist the dial uh, 5,000 times and twist the dial. That's a function uh, of how old I am. I don't think radios have dials anymore. But uh, you twist the dial round and round and round, and you're very unlikely in Christian programming to hear a sermon on the tabernacle. Now, you might hear something about sacrifices, but even then, uh, when sacrifice is talked about, when the atonement is talked about, there's a false view that's given of those things and those doctrines. And this is really some place where we can go back to the Word of God and we can get this theological grounding once again in these great doctrines that the Word of God teaches. Several weeks ago, in our Wednesday evening Romans class, we had a visitor that came, and uh, we're happy to have visitors. We love to have visitors. And we were talking about Abraham's faith, and we were giving proofs that the faith that Abraham had in the Old Testament, that's 2,500 years before Christ came, that the faith that Abraham had in the Old Testament is the same faith that we have today. It's the same justifying faith that we have today. We believe the same thing about how to be saved that Abraham believed. And we were discussing that, and this visitor thought, well, you're spending too much time on that. You're spending too much time discussing those things. What you really need to do is stop, and you just need to talk about the marvelous grace of God. Well, that's a wonderful topic, and we should speak of the grace of God but I told him the purpose of our class is not to stay in those things that all of us know really well. 
But what we want to do in our discussion classes, and when we get down into the Word of God, we want to get deeper so that there are things that we discover that aren't things that we all know. And we need to talk about those things and develop the faith that we have in Christ, the doctrines that come out of the Word and know those doctrines well, not just the fact that we have been saved by grace. We need a deeper understanding. So we should have a desire that we would grow in the faith, that we would get down to the inner workings of the doctrines of the Word of God as much as we can of what has been revealed in the Word. Our appreciation of our salvation grows exponentially by how much we know of God's Word and these doctrines of the faith. Every doctrine that we learn speaks of Christ in some unique way. And so we find ourselves in places like the tabernacle of the Old Testament looking for the purpose that God would preserve these things in his word. Now the tabernacle is centered on Christ. Every part of it is another level of the marvelous work of Christ. So much so that there's not another place in scripture that we can go where we can in such a compact space find so much theological grounding on the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ. So we've undertaken the task of explaining the sacrificial system, which we did for weeks. And you remember that series was contemplated out of a question that came in our forum class. The question was, what are the Old Testament sacrifices about? Why are there so many Old Testament sacrifices? What's the difference in these sacrifices? And out of that question grew that long, long series from the Old Testament and and we undertook a part of a study of the tabernacle. Well, after we completed the sacrifices, I realized, well, here we are, and uh, we, we've just covered a, a good extent of tabernacle worship. And all that we really need to do now is just back up a little bit and, and look at some of the specific details of the tabernacle itself, not just talking about the worship system of the tabernacle, but go through the structure of the building, the articles of worship that Israel was commanded to make, and why those things are representative symbols of Jesus Christ. So this will be then the second time in 16 years as that I've been pastor that we that we get to go, have the opportunity to go through this series where I learned most of my theology. Now, I mentioned weeks and weeks ago in the message that I had on the mercy seat that starting with sacrifices was like trying to build a two-story building by putting on the first story first. That's hard to do. Matter of fact, you can't hardly do that. You leave it hanging out in midair. So what we're going to do now is we're going to back up and we're going to start to put that first story back under the, the system of the sacrifices. We understand in the order in which God gave the tabernacle worship. So if you'll open your Bibles here to Exodus chapter 25, here we're introduced to a new worship system for Israel. And you remember that Israel became a nation of laws when God met them at Mount Sinai. It was at Sinai that Israel became a cohesive people, a united people, and at the center of the nation was God and his holy commandments. Now, Abraham, as you know, was the father of the nation. But Abraham lived far before this. Abraham's not the one that gave Israel their worship system. Under Abraham, there wasn't any such thing as a central priesthood. Sacrifices were made, 
but none of those that we saw in tabernacle worship that had the figures and the details that we saw there. Uh, Abraham didn't have all those things that were available under Mosaic law. Later, the tabernacle worship was transferred nearly intact into temple worship. There wasn't much of a difference uh, between it. The tabernacle was just a temporary place that God had his people worship as they were going through the wilderness wanderings. And uh, that, that was a temporary structure, whereas the temple was a permanent structure when they got into Canaan. But, but the, the worship system was virtually the same. Now, I said a moment ago, there's, it's hard to find a preacher who preaches the tabernacle, and yet it seems strange that we find 37 chapters in Scripture that are devoted to it, 13 chapters in Exodus, 18 chapters in Leviticus, 2 in Deuteronomy, and then in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, there are four chapters, and that is 30% of the book of Hebrews that's dedicated to discussion of the tabernacle. I think that indicates that the tabernacle must be a significant topic. That there's something here that God wants us to know. And I don't think that there is any other part of God's word that we would ignore like the tabernacle has been ignored with so much material that's dedicated to it. And then in addition to that, understanding the tabernacle is essential for rightly dividing the word of God in many, many other passages. For example, how would we understand the atonement unless we had a very clear understanding of tabernacle worship and how atonement is introduced in that worship system. Well, this evening I'll speak only briefly from Exodus 25 just as an introduction and then we'll leave later sermons for more evaluation. Uh, Exodus 25, verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering." And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the, all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Since the New Testament was completed 2,000 years ago, God has not given another revelation to man. Now, I know that's a very vigorously debated statement because there are many people who believe that God still speaks, God still gives revelation. He gives it through supernatural visions. God will give it in dreams. God may give more information through speaking in unknown tongues. And the charismatic movement is built on that premise. And so they encourage the use of sign gifts and gifts of knowledge and interpretations of dreams and so on. And it's not even unusual for their preachers to say that God has spoken to them in some special way, that God has given them a word of knowledge that he hasn't revealed to someone else, and God has given them something somebody or nobody has previously known. I heard Jimmy Swaggart say that the preaching of the cross was not right, that it wasn't accurate until God came to him and gave him a special revelation of the cross of Jesus Christ. Others 
make the claim that they believe that the scriptures are authoritative, but they don't believe that it's the only authority that God gives. That we can look in other places, we can find other things, we can use those dreams and visions and all these other uh, methods of revelation, and God's word is not enough for us. There is another authority. But I believe the scriptures show us that that is an impossible thing because the Bible says the word of God is complete. That it is the full revelation of God to man. That the Bible is all that God intended that man should know concerning life and godliness. Second Timothy says that very thing. It says the word is enough to thoroughly furnish us unto all good works. And we learn everything that we need to know through the word of God. And if it's capable and uh, uh, that it can develop us into a life of godliness and what God would have us know, then there isn't anything else that we need to know than what God reveals in the Word. But until the Bible was finished, until it was completed, God did have other ways of making himself known. From the creation of Adam to the last apostle John finished up the writing of the Bible, God used progressive revelation. God kept showing new things and revealing his will for man, line upon line, precept upon precept. In the days of the patriarchs, the knowledge of God wasn't much dependent on what was written. There wasn't a written form of the word of God. It wasn't until Moses wrote the first five books, the Pentateuch, that we had some of God's word. And so up until that time, knowledge of God came in different ways. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God spoke in various ways. God spoke in diverse ways. Sometimes God would speak audibly. People would actually hear the voice of God as he spoke. Sometimes God would speak through the mediation of angels. That is, he would send an angel to people to tell them what they must do. Sometimes God spoke in signs and wonders. That is, miracles that were performed. God spoke directly to Moses. Moses heard God in the audible voice and Moses also saw signs and wonders. God appeared to him in the burning bush. And this is the way that the worship of the tabernacle came into being. That God spoke to Moses. God called Moses up on Mount Sinai where he gave him the tables of the law. At the same time, he gave him the instructions for a building, what, uh, what we really wouldn't consider to be a building, but a tent. A tent of meeting and all the constituent parts that Israel needed for proper worship of the holy God that they were just now beginning to know. In those instructions were the five sacrifices that we've discussed, all the intricate details of those. Those were the visuals. That's a way that God spoke. They were representative types and symbols and figures of true things. They were patterns of things that were found in heavenly places. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 says that the priest offered gifts according to the law. And it says, who serve, the priests serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For thus saith he, or saith he, thou make all things, seeth thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. So the tabernacle was the home of symbols. It was a home of figures that spoke truths of the glory of God. And there's always a danger when people are given things that they can see. When you're given symbols, 
There's always a danger that the symbols will be turned into the truths that are signified. In other words, the symbol, rather than being a type or a symbol of salvation, becomes the way of salvation. That happened both in Judaism and also in Christianity. In Judaism, the Jews turned circumcision into a way that people could be saved. Circumcision was an outward sign. That was a sign of the covenant of God. But they turned that around to say a person must be circumcised in order to be saved. In, in Christianity, the same thing happened because then it became the symbols like baptism and symbols like sacraments that some people say are a part of this system, that those symbols, baptism and sacraments, those are the way of salvation. That's what you have to have in order to be saved. And so the scripture warns about that. And in the explanation that we have in Hebrews, it tells us these things, no, these are just symbols. These are patterned. This is a pattern of heavenly things. This is not the real thing. This is just a type of something that's real. And so Hebrews says the types are replaced by better things. We don't need the symbols any longer. We don't need those because they have been replaced by better things. And if you read through Hebrews, you keep seeing this word better show up continuously. This is better. This is better. This is better. And always that better thing is Jesus Christ. That Christ is better than the Old Testament priesthood. That Christ is better than angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Melchizedek. Christ is better than anything that you can find in the ceremonial law. But until he came, and until we had the completed word of God, there were these types and figures of Old Testament worship that would be explained and open up the revelation and the person and the character of Jesus Christ in what we would say is a blaze of glory. Now those of you in our Romans class, you know that we've had a discussion about this. How much did Israel understand about the types and figures. All these sacrifices that they made, all these strange things that God told them to do, how much did they really understand what that was all about? And we talked about that. And as we did, I pointed out that before even the law was given, before the law was given to Moses, there was Job. Job lived before Moses. Job lived probably about the time of Abraham, contemporary with Abraham and Job made sacrifices. Job knew about the depravity of the human heart. God, Job knew about the wrath and the judgment of God. Job knew that there was a Redeemer that one day would come to this earth. Job knew that there would be a resurrection of the body. He knew that men, that people are justified by faith. And so apparently, he knew more than many New Testament Christians know. And yet, the fellow that attended our class that I spoke of before said, can't we just talk about grace? Well, we could. And I said, that's a good subject. But there's some things that I'd like to know. I'd like to know how did Job know all of those things? I want to know how Job knew because those things were important enough that God recorded them in the Bible. They're important enough that God told the story of Job. And in the New Testament, it says you as a New Testament Christian you need to have the patience of Job. Why would God say that? He wants some, us to learn something. Now, Job's patience 
is wrapped up in the knowledge of these doctrines. Why didn't Job do as his wife said? His wife said, Job, after all your trouble, after all that's happened, curse God and die. Why didn't Job do it? Because he knew something. He knew something about God. What Job saw was a different revelation that told him there is hope in God. That there is hope in God to redeem and to justify. And he knew when he listened to his friends, his friends gave him no justification. They were basically saying the same thing. God has punished you. Job, you need to die. But in the end, we find that God confirmed Job in his faith. So the Old Testament patriarchs knew these things. They knew about grace. They knew about justifying faith. And they knew that faith is demonstrated in sanctification. And I would say that most New Testament Christians are far outshined in their knowledge of God's Word by Old Testament counterparts. So I can't really explain to you how much they knew about types and symbols, but obviously they knew sacrifice was required, and yet at the same time they knew that those animal sacrifices they made could never save them. Their faith was in the justification, justification of the Redeemer that would come. Well, let's go to this very short outline. There are three important aspects of tabernacle worship that help us to discern the importance of studying this subject. The first is the place of worship. Verse number 8 holds the key to the purpose of the tabernacle. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I think that we can understand that Israel's exodus from Egypt was a tremendous time of anticipation. There were doubts and fears about leaving Egypt and going into the wilderness. But there was also no doubt that there was never a people that was blessed as much as they were blessed. It was more than 400 years since God gave Abraham the promise that they would receive a land. Now Israel has been in slavery for 200 years in Egypt. And then God called them out. In Hosea 11, verse 1, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. When Israel was a child. Isn't that interesting? Israel was a child. And that means when Israel was the, in the infancy of the birth state, before they had become a nation, when Israel was a child, God called his son out of Egypt. Now, already right there, at the very beginning, as the Exodus is about to take place, and Israel was formed already, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in view. Now, some of you may recognize that this is a prophecy that's repeated in Matthew chapter 2. And it was fulfilled when Christ uh, was taken, when Jesus was taken by Joseph and Mary, and they fled to Egypt to be protected from Herod. Then after the death of Herod, God called his holy child up out of Egypt. And that family returned and Jesus spent his childhood growing up in Nazareth. Now in the wilderness, Israel became the nation. The law was given to them at Mount Sinai. They were given a formal worship system, that is the tabernacle. And this deliverance from Egypt was a divine statement that this one nation belongs to God. This is God's chosen nation. Now, perhaps all those years of slavery 
200 years of slavery had just beaten down the promise in them. That they, they, were, they were maybe thinking that the promise to Abraham wasn't true. It's never going to happen. But then one day, that promise was renewed at the burning bush when God spoke to Moses. And what is it that God said to Moses? He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was there that God revealed his name and his intention that he would bring these people out of Egypt into the land that he promised for an inheritance. It's here at this point that he reveals his name is Jehovah and that his name is on these people. They are his people and he gave them his name. So that all of them would recognize he is the one true living God. Now without rehearsing all the story of the Exodus, you are aware that God showed his supremacy over all the supposed Egyptian gods. There were ten plagues that God brought on Egypt. And each of those plagues was a specific attack on one of Egypt's false gods. So Israel was brought out of Egypt... And at Sinai is where God prepared them as a people and gave them a place of worship, a place that would display his presence with them. And as much as God wanted them to have a place, I think that Israel was ready for it. They wanted it too. Their faith would be built in this way. Now at first we recognize that faith is needed for things we can't see. It's one of the definitions of faith, things that we can't see, believing in things that we can't see. But then God began to build their faith by giving them some things that they could see. So God said, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Sanctuary means a consecrated place, a place that is set apart, that is sacred and holy. You probably recognize that sanctuary and sanctify are two closely related words. A sanctuary is a consecrated place, a holy place. And when Israel came to the sanctuary, they were in the presence of the holy God. Now there are many, many parts to the rituals that we've already talked about. We've talked about the sanctifying aspects of those rituals. And one of the things that we learn from it is that in places where God is worshipped, that place becomes a holy place. And Israel was not permitted to enter the holy except by a representative. They had to approach God through a mediator. And that mediator was the high priest. That symbol of worship was carried over into the New Testament church. Now we don't have places that we can't touch. You know the Israelites were told don't you touch this and don't you touch that. Don't come near this. Well it's not quite like that in the New Testament church. Because everything that we have has been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. All the prohibitions in that regard have been taken away. But surely we ought to see this. That always when we come into the presence of God, there is to be an attitude of worship. There must be reverence for the holy God that is maintained. Reverence should prevail. And I think that we're trying to preserve that through the reading of the word, through the prayers that we offer to God, through the solemnity that we desire to show, recognizing this holiness of gathering in God's presence. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, it was once taught in this church that the church is not a place of worship. And I don't know where that came from, why anyone would make that statement, but I do strenuously disagree with it. There is a private worship. No doubt, there is a private worship. We all ought to have places of worship in our own homes. But there is also a corporate worship. 
And that's when the people of God come together into the sanctified place. And here is where we do the sanctified duty of worshiping God together as God's people. Now again, I know that we must worship privately. But I would dare say that if all the worship that God gets is private, the way that worship people worship privately, then I would say that God is hardly worshipped. Because most people don't worship privately. And so we need to come here and we need to be reminded that we are God's people and that we are in God's place and we are here to magnify Christ and to glorify Him. That's the presence of God. Or that is the place of worship. Next we come then to the presence of God. The purpose of the tabernacle is the presence of God. Types and shadows and figures and all of these things that are given to Israel, all of that is useless unless God is there. We need to know, is God here? And if the presence of God is not here for worship, then what good is it? And how are we going to worship God if God isn't near? And how do we know that God is near? Well, in the Old Testament, there wasn't the same understanding of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You and I understand as believers in Christ, the moment that you trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit came into you as an abiding presence. You always have him with you. Now, that was true in the Old Testament as well, but they didn't understand it like we do today. We did, they didn't understand how the Holy Spirit works. And so God manifested himself in a different way. He showed himself in a cloud in the daytime and in a pillar of fire at night to protect them. So when the tabernacle was set up in the camp, there was a cloud that came and stood over it in the day. And there was a fire by night that stood stationary over the Holy of Holies, where was the Ark of the Covenant. That symbolized to them, God is here. And when Israel was ready to move, they packed up the tabernacle, and that cloud that had been stationary, while it was all set up, that cloud began to move. And that was the presence of God with them to take them to the next place that God wanted them to go. And then you remember when, when Israel finally crossed the Jordan, the Ark of the Covenant went before them, and that was carried by the priests. And when the priests stepped into the water, the waters parted. They stepped into the swelling of Jordan at flood time. And as soon as they did, the waters parted, and they walked across on dry ground. That was God's presence with them. So they carried the Ark round and around Jericho for seven days, on the seventh day, the wall fell flat. And their hope was, God's presence is here. He's symbolized in the ark. Then you remember years later, the Philistines captured the ark. And what was it that Israel feared? They said, Ichabod. And that word means, the glory of God has departed. So they always had this fear, God's presence will leave us. And when they disobeyed God and the ark was stolen, God's presence left them. But God gave them signs and symbols to show them that he was near until those signs and symbols were no longer needed. And so today, we know that God is near in one way. The pages of Scripture. God is here in his word. And of course, you know as I spoke a moment ago, when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your heart. But you don't see the Holy Spirit, do you? But you know he's there. 
And you know he's there because you can read in the Word of God that tells you that you have him. And whatever that feeling is that you have, and maybe it's not the same for all of us as children of God. Maybe we don't feel exactly the same thing, but all of us have this common sense, don't we? God's Spirit is with us. God is in us. God is living in us. And the Word of God tells us that's true. So God made himself known or makes himself known through this holy book, through the infallible pages of his word. He uses that word to let us know he's in us. Paul wrote, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so we find that the word of Christ, he means the very same thing. It's saying the Holy Spirit needs to dwell in you richly. And folks, that is the reason that we study the Bible. This is the reason that we get down and we dig into God's Word because every principle that we learn shows Christ. He dwells in the Word. Now thirdly, the place of worship, the presence of God, and finally, the pictures of Christ. You've seen pictures in the sacrifices. We saw pictures of Christ in the garments of the high priest and that symbolism. Well, you need to be prepared to see more pictures. The tabernacle is God's photo album of his son. Pictures of Christ, metaphorically speaking, of course, pictures of Christ are hanging everywhere in the tabernacle. Now, in Moses' day, they best understood God through the symbols. They couldn't pick up a Bible as we do. There was nothing written that they could read. Perhaps Job was written before the Pentateuch, Uh, But I've not seen a command. Uh, If you have it and you can show it to me, I've not seen a command for Israel to read the book of Job. They may have had it. Perhaps they knew of it, but we don't know for sure. So what they learned, or the way they learned, was through visual presentations. And so instead of hearing about a sacrifice as we do, instead of hearing about a sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago, they made sacrifices. They had the visual They experienced sacrifices every day. Adam and Eve saw God kill animals to clothe them. Lot didn't hear about the wrath of God. Lot saw it. He saw fire and brimstone fall down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham didn't hear about the love of God. He saw it demonstrated. He took Isaac up on Mount Moriah. And just as he was ready to plunge that knife, that dagger, into his son Isaac... God stopped him, and a voice came from heaven and told him to stop. And there Abraham looked behind him, and he saw a ram that was caught in the thicket. He saw God's love at work. So they saw these concepts acted out. And to them, everything in the tabernacle spoke in some way. It correlated to God. God emphasized his holiness in everything they saw. And they respected that when they were told, Do not touch this unless you die. So the position of the camp... The materials of the building, the furnishings, the pillar of cloud, the sacrifices, all spoke in some way of God. Now you remember, Israel didn't have an idol like heathens. God never permitted an idol to be made because God is not a dumb idol. God can't be pictured in any way by an idol that doesn't speak, that doesn't move, and doesn't have power. So God said, you shall never make an idol of me. An idol is a one-dimensional view. It is a representative, an idol is made, it represents physical features of which God has none. But on the other hand, the tabernacle was multidimensional. You go around it, you look at it, you examine it, and every time that you go around, there's something new revealed about Christ. 
How many have been to the Grand Canyon? You ever spend a day at the Grand Canyon and watch how it changes as the day goes by? The shadows change and every hour you get a different view of the Grand Canyon. It all looks different hour by hour. And that is the same almost as you're looking at the tabernacle in the scriptures. That the more you learn, the more you see. There's a changing view. All the different facets of Christ are opened up in tabernacle worship. It's like shadows changing. And there's another stunning view of Jesus that is revealed. How different was Israel's worship from Egypt's and Canaan's? How different from lifeless idols of stone they worship? God can't be pictured in an idol. God's word teaches that God is a spirit. As a spirit, he can't be seen. And God can't relate to man on a personal level. In the tabernacle, there were visuals, there were pictures. And those pictures include the God-man who manifests the Father God on a personal level. So what was it that God did before Christ came, before the God-man came in the flesh? How did they know God was with him? God gave them the tabernacle. God gave them these magnificent, glorious sights and sounds of the tabernacle. And how blessed was Israel to have pictures of Christ that showed them God. Without Scripture, without the Scriptures, that's the way that they were used to learning. So the tabernacle showed them that God came to them in a personal way. That they would have a visible manifestation of God. That it would be the person of Jesus Christ who would finally come and show them a visualization of God. John wrote this in John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Now look at that verse carefully. Do you see the connection to the tabernacle in the verse? The word dwelt among us. And the literal translation of that is, the word tabernacled among us. Jesus Christ pitched his tent among us. The living Jesus Christ, the glory of the Father, came and tabernacled with us. Would that phrase mean anything to you? If you'd never heard of the tabernacle? Would you understand what John was saying to us? When he said the word dwelt with us, if you didn't understand that he meant tabernacle, just the picture of the Old Testament tabernacle that shines through in the presence of Jesus Christ, that is God with us, like the tabernacle was God with them when God gave it. But still, for all the beauty and all the representations of the Old Testament, there isn't much good in any of it if there isn't a literal fulfillment. And so to bless us, God gave us more than types and figures. God didn't leave us with pictures. God didn't leave us with things that are just a, a symbol of heavenly things. Instead, he brought us the reality. The object of the symbols must come. And those pictures picture the reality. Hebrews says, For Christ is not entered, entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the figures of the true are not close to being as valuable as the true. Here in our text in Exodus 25, there it speaks of gold, precious stones, ornamental works, fine fabrics. All of these things they collected, none of them is worth the Son of God. And so the real, living, true 
Son of God, Jesus Christ, entered the holy place, not made with hands, not made with men's hands. And there he appears in the presence of God for us. And so he appears for us where one day we will also enter into the presence of God forever and ever. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the beginnings of this study and how, as we go through it, we'll see pictures of Christ unfolding, different avenues of the work that he did, the marvelous salvation that we have in him, the many, many doctrines that flow out of the Word of God that first become known to us in this place of the tabernacle. And then as we get into the New Testament, it shows us what those signs and pictures were all about. Lord, we're so happy to have the opportunity to look at Jesus Christ in, in such a way that the tabernacle presents. And may we learn more about our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.